let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer and uh, present the service to the Lord, shall we? Father, as we come before you, we are grateful as your people to have such a nice building in order to meet you, meet with you in. We're grateful for the fact that we are united in love. We're going to speak about that today, the message that you've given to me. We're grateful that we are young, we are old, we are everywhere in between. We're grateful that we have your word, grateful that you preserved us up to this point, grateful for every opportunity that you give to us, whether good or bad, in order to exalt your name. We just give you thanks and praise. And Lord, we just pray that you would remember those who aren't with us here today. They're not in this room because they're sick. Lord, we pray that you would show mercy to them, that your will would be accomplished in their lives. And we pray that as they go through whatever struggle they have to go through, as we too will go through struggles, that the Holy Spirit would guide us so that we never forget to keep our eyes on you. Because certainly we know that there is a wicked one, an evil one, who does his absolute best to pull us away from you. And one of the ways he does it is through pain and sorrow and trouble and agony and all sorts of different things. So, Lord, please remember them. And as this message is being preached, Lord, I pray that hearts and minds would be open. I pray that our folks who are here would listen. And I pray, Lord, that good will come from it and that you will be honored by it. And I ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you know it, but back in 1795, the, um, the model of the United States of America is e pluribus unum, a Latin term that simply means out of many, one. And back in 1795, it was added to the first coin, uh, one of the first coins that we minted, it was a $5 gold piece. And I don't know who came up with it, I didn't do the research, so I really don't know, but I can tell you it was a pretty good model. Because we Americans have come from everywhere, haven't we? We've come from Germany, we've come from England, we've come from France and Ireland, and we've come from everywhere. Mexico, Canada, it doesn't matter. We've come from everywhere. And all those people have come together and they have united to make one rather powerful and strong nation. And as one people, of course, we fought the War of Independence and then we fought the War of 1812 and then we fought the Mexican-American War in 1846 because the nation was united and it was able to do that. But then in 1861, something happened, didn't it? We call it the Civil War. In 1861, the United States of America, the United People of America became very disunited. And I know it's simplistic, but when you really drill down to it and you get down to the bottom outlying reasons for the Civil War, you find out it was because of selfishness, human selfishness. People on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, they were, they were rousing people up, getting people excited. It was rabble-rousing at its best. And what was the problem behind all that? Well, there were people who had good ideas and people who had bad ideas. But whether the ideas were good or bad, the end result was the same. The anger and the hatred and all the evil words that were being spoken back and forth finally erupted in a divided nation and the South said, we're out of here. We're seceding from the Union. And the result of that was a four-year war that cost 650,000 lives in this nation. That was the highest total 
highest number of people we've lost in any armed conflict, including World War II. And it was all over the fact that people wanted to have their own way. Some people, I said, wanted good things. They wanted to end slavery. Other people wanted to maintain it. Some people wanted states' rights to be elevated. Other people wanted tariffs to be dropped. They could sell their cotton at a more reasonable rate, make more money. But really and ultimately, it was just plain selfishness on the part of people. Everybody wanting what they wanted. Now, we were lucky as a nation. We survived intact. Oh, we went through a difficult period of time, but we survived intact. Ultimately able to come back together again. But there were other countries who had civil wars, and they didn't fare quite so well. Do you remember the nation of Yugoslavia? Remember the little Yugos people would drive around? Well, they manufactured those there on old Fiat equipment. The nation of Yugoslavia came into existence at the end of World War I in 1918. It was a Unified nation, strong nation. As a matter of fact, there was a time it was the most powerful economically and military, militarily of all the Eastern European countries. Very strong. But then after about 70 years or so, they had a civil war. And they broke apart, much like we did in the Civil War. But they broke apart over ethnic lines. And so this once proud and mighty nation, and because it was a proud and mighty nation, broke apart into eight smaller nations. For the same reason. People on both sides wanted to maintain their governments. The ethnic areas wanted to have their own governments run by their own people. The federal government there wanted to maintain all control over everybody, and they broke apart. And as a result, they went through the war, they went through the suffering, they went through the difficulties, and they had a high death rate, all the things that you can expect in a civil war. And they perished forever. Because the nation of Yugoslavia is no more. Now it's eight small little nations which are among the weakest and the poorest in all of Europe. Like the United States before our breakup, they did great things. But they were no longer unified, and they could no longer do those great things. Now. You know, I got to tell you, it's difficult for us to see those things taking place in the nations of the world. It's kind of difficult for us to see all the suffering that takes place, the hunger, the disease, all the different things that are happening. We see it in Ukraine right now. But you know, we still see it ourselves even in our own country, don't we? We see the selfishness of people in our own government. And I'm not going to pick on the Democrats or the Republicans, it's just something we see. We see laws being passed. We see um, the president making decrees. We see all sorts of different things. And all those things that are happening, all those laws that are being passed, all the decrees that are being made, are destroying the, the spiritual and the moral and the social and the, the economic fabric of the nation. And nobody seems to care. Nobody cares. Because when you're dealing with that kind of an attitude, we don't care what happens to anybody as long as it doesn't happen to me. And as long as I can somehow prosper for it, prosper through it all. We see these things. We don't like it. Many of you here don't watch the news. I don't watch it much anymore. I get kind of sick of seeing it. But as much as we hate to see that evil that's taking place, the division that takes place in nations, it's even worse when we see it in the church, that Jesus Christ died and shed his blood to build upon the face of this earth.
It's terrible to see it. If we look at the scriptures and we go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul is describing the unity that is supposed to be the hallmark of the church. And this is what he says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One, 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 one. Unity. The church was to be united. They were to be united in God and with God, united with each other in one faith, one baptism, one. Everything speaks one here. Now, before we go on here, I have to tell you that this oneness has to be glued together with something. And the glue that was supposed to hold the church together is, guess what it was? Love. The church, our union with Christ and our union with one another was to be held together by love. If we were to look at John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's our union with him. And then the next chapter over in chapter 15, verse 12, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the unity we have with one another. Now, before I go on, I want to explain something about love here. When you and I read that word love in the Bible, what do you think of? You're thinking of the English definition, right? You're thinking of the English word for love. And what does it mean to you and me? Well, our word for love always uh, conveys a certain amount of warm emotions, doesn't it? It always does. You don't say, I love my car, and then go out and kick the fender. You have an attachment to that car. So every time we use that word love, it always contains an emotional attachment. Love, joy, whatever, you know, joy and happiness and contentment, all sorts of different things. And it's a, pretty, um, it's a pretty useful word. We use it for everything, don't we? I mean, how many times have you said or heard somebody say, I love my dog, I love my cat, I love popcorn, I love hot dogs, I love my wife, I love my children. But listen to me. If you've ever said that or you ever heard somebody say that, would you naturally assume that when the person says, I love my dog, that they love their dog as much as they love their wife? You don't assume that. And there's a reason for that as well. You are English speakers, and you know that how you use a word in a sentence is going to convey what you mean by that word. The intensity of that word love, that emotional intensity, is based on how you use it in a sentence. So if I say, I love my wife, and I love my chickens, do I mean I love my wife as much as I love my chickens back in the, in the backyard? Absolutely not, and you know that. So here's the question. When Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and he said that we are to love one another as he has loved us, did he have the same thought in mind for love? Was he talking about an emotional attachment? The answer is no. See, we have a weak language. We have one word for love. And we use it for everything. But the Greeks didn't have one word for love. They had several words for love. And the word that Jesus chose to use here is the word agape. And agape doesn't have as much to do with the emotions as it has to do with the will. 
So what Jesus is basically saying here is it, it doesn't matter how you feel about a person. It doesn't matter if the person next to you is not somebody you care, you care much for. You are to love them with the will. And you're really kind of able to do that. You have the ability and you have the capability to do that. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we are told that the love of God, the love of God, the agape, same, same word, the agape love of God has been poured out in our hearts. We have it there. It's not that it's not there. It's that sometimes it's not used. And like every gift that you have that comes from God, you have to use that gift, don't you? All right. I think we've talked enough about that, but how does that love look in real life? Well, let's suppose for a moment here that Earl has a flat tire. Now, I know Earl can't fix that tire. He can't fix it because either he, he's using his cane, he can't get down there, he can't do it. I know he can't fix it, and I could fix it. But here's the problem. I really don't like Earl, and Earl really doesn't like me. Now, I know the command, right? That I am to love my brother in the Lord as much as the Lord loved me. So what do I do? Well, I fix his tire. He's part of the family. I fix his tire. But it involves something of me. It requires something of me. It requires me to deny myself. And that's what makes agape love so difficult. It requires me to deny myself. And what do I have to deny? Well, in this case, I have to deny the fact that I don't like Earl. Earl doesn't like me. Isn't that we've had words, it's just that we don't, we don't click. But I deny myself, and I go ahead and I take care of that. Now, why do you think Jesus told us and commanded us that we are to love with the will and not necessarily with the emotions? But there's really two reasons, I think. First of all, you cannot command that warm emotional love. You can't command it. You can't turn it on and turn it off. It's something that develops within you as you develop and, and, and build a relationship with somebody else, be it a person or with God himself. The second reason has to, be, has to do with this. You can't depend upon it. I may very well love you today, and tomorrow you're going to say something to me, and you're going to make me angry. And all of a sudden, that level of love within me for you is kind of dropping. And if you keep it up, it's going to go away. So you can't trust it. But agape love is completely different. You can trust that because it's based on the will and not on your fickle emotions here. Now, does that mean that, that emotional love, that warm feeling, doesn't play a part in the Christian experience? doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is this. You can't expect me to love you until I get to know you. I know some of you out here very well. And I love you very much with my emotions. Others of you I don't know quite so well. But I will love you with agape love. If you have a flat tire, I will help you fix it. And see, when, when, when that feeling fails, agape love steps in and takes over. And Jesus knows that. As you and I grow in love for one another, that love should grow. We should have an emotional feeling for one another. As real brothers and sisters. Problem is, we come from dysfunctional families, and we haven't really learned to even practice that in our own families. But we can learn to practice it here. And so it was that love 
that agape love, that love of the will, that the early church, if you go through the entire New Testament, and I'm sure Dick can probably verify this, you'll probably find that at least 95% of the time, maybe more, it is the word agape that's used, nothing else. The church is commanded over and over again and again to show this kind of love to one another. And it did. Look at Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5. People are selling property and they're giving it at the, dropping it at the feet of the apostles so that they can feed and clothe and, and take care of people in the church, including widows who had no family support, so that they could live. They're giving up their property for that. They were denying their, their, themselves because I got to tell you, you have money. Do you want to keep it? Of course you want to keep it. You don't want to give it away. But when you have this kind of love, you say, I'm going to give it away. Yes, the flesh says keep it. You might want it sometime. Remember that new motorcycle you wanted, that new car you wanted, new house you wanted? But you've got a brother or a sister who needs it more than you do. You give it away. And the church did that. But sadly, they didn't do it for long. Because as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verses 10 through 13, Paul said, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been clear to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Sadly, within 20 or so years after the Lord was crucified and raised again, a division had entered the church called sectarianism. Sectarianism is nothing more than a person giving loyalty to one person or one group over another person or another group. The church was beginning to divide along sectarian lines. I am of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas or Peter. And through all that, they were actually beginning to split the church and create problems. Problems that have come down to us to this very day. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But they had forgotten in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23 that Jesus said, or actually Paul said, through the Holy Spirit, there is only one head and one leader of the church. Only one person we are supposed to follow. Do you know who that person is? Jesus himself. He is to be the only leader. Church is breaking apart, and I know something of this. Sheila and I come from a Lutheran background, a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod background. And I know Lutheran pastors. I have two friends. And I can tell you one of them used to come to our house all the time. I won't mention his name. He might be listening today. He would come to our house all the time. He and I would sit and we'd talk about doctrine. We'd talk about church. We'd talk about all kinds of different things. And he admitted to me during that period of time, he actually believed at that time that the true gospel could be preached by other Christian churches. But after he had gone through the, the Lutheran seminary and been fully and completely indoctrinated in, in their dogma, he decided that really wasn't the case anymore. He decided that because Luther had a more firm and complete understanding of the truth, if you really wanted to understand the truth, you needed to be a Lutheran. But not just any Lutheran. You had to be a Missouri Synod Lutheran because they had even a more 
better and complete understanding of the man Luther. And therefore the implication was what he's talking about here simply this. If you want to be a first class Christian, you have to be part of the Missouri Church and the Missouri Synod Church. So not only was this friend of mine driving a wedge between the universal body of Christ, and you know you all are part of the body of Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, it doesn't matter. If you have put your faith and trust in the Son of God, you are a member of the body of Christ. And he was driving a wedge in that universal body, but he was also driving it in his own church body. And when I think about that, and I've thought a lot about that, I thought, what, is, what on earth created that within him? And I have to tell you, simplistically, it was pride. Pride in the man he was following and pride in the organization that that man and his followers developed. I have to tell you, also, I had another friend, Lutheran pastor, who told me one day that it is possible, it is possible, that Christians and other churches are actually Christians. There is a possibility. Now listen, I got to tell you. If I stand up here or stand out there, wherever I happen to be, and you and I get into a discussion, and I'm, t and I'm speaking truth, not what I think, not what I learn in a Bible college or anything else, not that that stuff is wrong. It can create a problem if we're not careful. But I'm speaking to you about what is in the book, and we're having a discussion on this, and you're part of a church where your pastor or whoever he is is telling you that, you know what, Jesus was a good guy, but he really wasn't the son of God. He was actually the angel Michael, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. He was actually the angel Michael, and he was sent down, and on and on and on. If you're part of a church and they tell you that the man who is the head of your church is actually God in human flesh, then I got to tell you, if I take exception to that and I'm speaking truth to you, then good for me. Because I am doing my absolute best to save you from an error that will destroy you. But if I tell you that your church is an error because you don't, you don't wash feet like we do, you don't do that. And Jesus commanded it. And if you don't wash another person's feet, I hate to tell you, you're really not one of us. And it goes beyond that. Because you're not one of us, I really can't have anything to do with you. When I do that, what am I trying to do? Well, we find out here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul said, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. If I do that to anybody here, or if anybody does that to you, and begins to look upon you as being less than a Christian because you don't keep to all the things that they keep to, and they really can't have much you know, fellowship with you because of that, they are zealously courting you. They are excluding you because they want you to sit back and say, you know what? They have the truth. And they don't want to hang around me because they're afraid I'm going to somehow contaminate them. I need to look into this. I think I'm going to go to that church, the good church, and leave this one over here. It happened to me when I was a kid. And we were in the Worldwide Church of God, which was a cult. 
They used that very effectively. And my parents and I stayed there for a, a good long time. Because you see, when I'm trying to split the church through whatever, whatever means possible, I have a goal. I don't really care if you've been born again. I don't really care if you say you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't really care if you're trying to read the scriptures, interpret it, and live by it, and be the holy people that God called you to be. What I care about is you aren't following me. You're not doing what I do. You're not believing what I believe. And until you do, we really can't have any fellowship. And I'm going to warn people off your church. Oh, yes. The devil's where you are. God is with us. That is sectarianism. It's an evil thing. And it, wasn't ju it didn't just begin in the church at Corinth. It began even earlier than that. And we have a recorded instance here in Mark chapter 9, verse 38 through 41. Now John answered Jesus, said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon speak evil afterward of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. John wanted to exclude this man because he didn't follow with them. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you find out that the apostles had a problem, didn't they? Everybody wanted to be in charge. There's a pecking order. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the Gentiles. They're going to, you know, they're scourge him. They're going to, and, and they're going to crucify him. And, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. So when I read this with what John said, all I can think of John has in mind is the pecking order. There's a pecking order here, and you're not part of that pecking order. You're kind of operating outside of the lines here. It didn't matter to John that this man had enough faith in Jesus Christ in that great name that he could actually cast out demons out of somebody who was possessed. He wasn't concerned with that. You know, he should have been, because I'm going to tell you right now, nobody ever really casts out a demon without faith in God. And I mean our God. Does it happen? Oh yes, it happens. I'm fully convinced Satan can play around. He can do all sorts of things to further his cause. But nobody can say, depart in the name of Jesus and be gone, and it goes and it never comes back. Except the one who has their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. You can try. But then you can end up like the seven sons of Sketha, spoken about here in Acts chapter 19. Let me read it to you. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sketha, a Jewish high priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are you? And then the spirit, in, in, the man in whom that spirit was, 
leapt upon those people, and the scripture says, and they ran out of that house naked and bleeding. He just had a field day with them because they couldn't use that name. They had no right to use it. But this man did, and John wanted to forbid him, and it was a sectarian issue. You don't follow us. Jesus forbade him, but you know what would have happened if John had been successful? Using that spirit of sectarianism, he would have killed the work at that moment of the Son of God. He would have destroyed it. And do you know why? Jesus came for one reason. Do you know what it was? Luke 19.10. He said, I have come. I have come to seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus came for. To seek and to save every single one of us. We who are the lost. I don't think John was overly concerned about the lost at that time. John was concerned for, he's not with us. If he's not with us, he's not one of us. If he's not one of us, we don't want him around here. Do you know that the Lord has given you and me the same command found in Matthew chapter 28? That you and I are supposed to go out and seek and save the lost in his name. Tell me, how's that going? How's that going in the Christian church? Do you know that 4,000 churches a year shut their doors and 1,000 new ones open up? for a net loss of 3,000 churches a year. Did you know that? What do you think the world thinks when they look at the church and they see that there's 30,000 to 41,000 Christian denominations all fighting, all arguing, trying to get the same dollars and the same members? What do you think they think? Do you think, wow, I guess Jesus is alive. I guess I really want to be part of all that. I'll tell you what they think. I have an older brother who is not a believer. My favorite brother. He and I are like this. We do everything together, one trips together, we do all sorts of different things. And for years and years and years, as my wife can attest, I have talked with Joe, shared what I know, limited as it may be, of the gospel with him. And one day he just got tired of hearing it all. And he said to me, Bro, He's always calling me bro. I really don't like that, but bro. If you Christians are all filled with the Holy Spirit, like you say you are, why do you hate each other so much? Why are the Lutherans against the Methodists and Methodists against the Episcopalians? The Episcopalians hate the Baptists and the Baptists hate everybody. Why is that? Well, he says that because he was a former Baptist before he became a nothing. Why is that? You know, I really didn't have a, an answer for him. But I can tell you this. When he said that to me, my mind got to thinking. I thought, you know, God be merciful to all of us. Because one day we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Or we're going to have to give an account. I, you know what? I think to myself, I don't want to be there. And have the Lord Jesus say to me, you know what? Um, you did pretty good. I mean, you tried to follow my word, and, and I appreciate that. <laughs> he won't say any of that, but, but I don't want him to say to me, I hate to tell you this, but I can't tell you how many hundreds will never be here because of you. You didn't preach my gospel. You preached another gospel. 
You didn't bring them to my church. You brought them to yours. You didn't care about their souls. You cared about other things. It isn't that I'm going to lose out on eternity, but I'm going to tell you what, I don't want to, I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to have him looking at me like that and, and saying anything like that. You know, there's a mark that all Christians have. It's called the mark of a true Christian, which is the title of the message. It took me a while to get to that. There is a mark. The mark of a true Christian is not, at least in the eyes of the world, is not that I believe you have to worship God on the Jewish Sabbath Saturday and you can't eat shellfish like the Seventh-day Adventists believe. And the mark of a true Christian isn't that you must believe that the bread and the wine, bread and wine, not bread and grape juice, bread and wine, mystically becomes somehow, through consubstantiation, the, the body and blood of Christ. We don't know how, but it becomes that way, like the Lutherans believe. The mark of a true Christian is found in the book of John, chapter 13, beginning at the 34th verse, and this is what it says. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know. All will know. The all includes everybody in the world. It includes the, everybody outside here, outside of this building. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. But how are they going to know if we really don't love each other? How are they ever going to know if we distance ourselves from our brothers and sisters just because they don't believe some of the little things we believe? How are we going to know when we ignore the people who come in with nose rings like one fellow did yesterday at the funeral service, had a, one of the pallbearers had a nose ring? People avoid people like that because they think, oh my goodness, how do we, how do we know he's not a brother in the faith? How do we know when he comes wearing blue jeans, whether they're black jeans or whatever they are, that he's not a brother in the faith? How do we know if his hair is a little bit longer and he's got more of it than some of us? How do we know? But we avoid these people. And then we have this acid test of whether you really are a believer. What church do you go to? And as soon as they tell us, we, we know. Mm-mm. No, they don't, they don't believe right. Well, do they believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yeah, they, well, they believe that. Well, do they believe that you can only be saved through, by the grace of God through faith in his Son, Jesus? Well, yeah, they believe that too. But they don't wash feet. They have grape juice at communion. Everybody knows it's wine. I mean, after all, it has to be wine, right? You don't put it in a bag and the bag doesn't burst. If it's not fermenting, it's got to be wine. Therefore, they're an error. We can't have anything to do with them. This is what the world sees. But you know what they're looking for? They're looking for that real love that Jesus spoke about. Not that love of the emotion. That comes as we build relationships. But that love of the will. And we can all do it. You can treat the Lutheran neighbor as a brother in Christ. He is a brother in Christ. He believes all that you do. He's got some quirky things. But he believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He knows he's not saved by works. Everybody knows Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. They'll, they'll repeat it to you just like this, and we can do the same thing. And you can, have, you can have a brotherly relationship with your Presbyterian neighbor, provided he believes the same things. Jesus, Son of God, you know, saved by, by grace through faith in, in Jesus. 
we can have a brotherly and a sisterly relationship with all of our Christian brothers and sisters. But you know what you got to do? you got to deny yourself. And that's the love of the will. You've got to put it aside. I have to put it aside. You know, i got to tell you, when Pastor Ed asked me, could you do this again? Would you, would you do it again? Yeah, I'll do it again. I had nothing to go on. Any sermons I preached a long time ago, I got rid of them. To be quite frank, I never thought I'd do this again. Not like this. I had to start from scratch. And when he asked me to do it this time, again, I'm thinking, oh Lord, what do I do? And I had nothing. So I said, Lord, you, you, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. But it has to be something from you, not from me. Because, folks, I'm going to tell you what. If all you're hearing is me telling you things just so I can fulfill my obligation, you might as well have a clown up here. At least he'll juggle and do something funny, and you can laugh. But the Lord gave me a message, and this is the message. I don't share it because I am aware of anybody in this congregation who's sectarian in spirit. But I can tell you somebody who was, he's standing right here. I was very sectarian in spirit. And if you didn't believe as I believed, well, i got to tell you what, your Christianity was in doubt. And it took years and years for the Lord, through his word, to make me understand I was just being a hypocrite because I didn't even keep my own standards. The purpose of the message today isn't to make anybody feel bad. It's to get you to think. Do you really love your brother and sister in the Lord with your will? Are you really willing to put yourself out we have a brother today who's up in a Vista hospital. Sheila and I, we have an issue at home. Yesterday I went out and turned on the hose bed on the outside and the handle like a cartoon popped off and water shooting all over the place. So I just shut it off. She went to do laundry and it won't obviously come on because I didn't know. They're both tied together so she couldn't do laundry. So. And I thought to myself, well, we can't go because we have important things to do today. But then I thought to myself, you know what? You have to deny yourself. Here's a man who is depressed, who wouldn't be, who needs to be cheered up. And the only people who can do it, the only people who can ever cheer you up is your family. And I decided, we're going to go. I'm not telling you that so you go. I'm telling you how that should work in our lives, in my life, the man who was a sectarian. Now, before we close, I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture that, we, that, that you all know very well. You could probably repeat it and don't need me to even read it to you. But it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read that. I want you to think about it. I want you to take it home. I want you to maybe meditate on it a little bit today. And then we'll close in prayer. Alrighty. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. 
does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. If I have to tell you, the love spoken of here is a God-fay love, not emotional love. And that love, he said, never fails. But he goes on to say, but you know, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is agape love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray to you and ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters who are gathered here today and those who aren't here today but who may be watching and on the internet. I pray that this message will sink deeply into our hearts because, Father, I'm convinced we are the terminal generation. I'm convinced there will be none other coming after us. And I'm convinced that if we do not show your love to the world as we show it to one another, through the Holy Spirit, the world is never going to come to you because they see enough fakery, they see enough phoniness, they have enough religion. They need you, and we're the only guides they have. So I pray, Lord, that each one of us, including myself, the man who was a sectarian, I pray that your love, this, this love this, that you shed abroad in our hearts, I pray that it will burn in us like a fire, and I pray that we will have to let it Give it vent, lest we burst apart. And I pray that each one of us will begin to do that today as we walk out of this building and as we look at each other, that we will actually love one another and do for each other what you have done for us. And Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.